Miss Tammy, have you pushed the button? Would you? Thank you. Glory to God. Nah, uh-uh. No, ain't no really need to be sorry. That's not your routine. You're filling in. Amen. I appreciate it very much. Is it working? There you go. Praise the Lord. Boy, I feel like my congregation's running out on me. Lost three out that door and two out the back. Amen. Just here for the singing. Scotty's gone, so the, turn out the lights. The party's over. God bless you for coming back, amen, on a Sunday morning after what a good time we've had for the past four nights in a row. And boy, I'll tell you what, God played Scotty like a fiddle. And uh, every night was good, and it just kept getting better and better and better. And I was thankful for every bit of it. I needed that. It was like a, a fresh drink of cold water uh, for me. I like to be able to sit and to listen to good preaching. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a little bit jealous of my pulpit. I don't like uh, turning it over to anybody. But if I'm going to turn it over to anybody, I guess Scotty McDowell would be one of my top choices, if not the top. Uh, good stuff. Preached on Daniel chapter 3 for two nights and then preached on Daniel chapter 4 for two nights. And what he talked about was the pride and the arrogance, uh, the sinfulness, the wickedness of King Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, for the rest of the time, he, uh, he realized that God had come against a wicked man and moved in his heart in such a way um, as to make the people of God that were in his nation that had been taken captive, that, that they were determined not to compromise. You see, the world hates you. The world hates God. The world hates Christ. And since Satan and the world can't do anything with God or with Christ, then they come against what it is that he loves, and that's his people. And what they want you to do, since you can't lose your relationship, they want you to lose your fellowship. And they'll tempt you to compromise with the things of the flesh, the things of the world, the things that are going on. And he built a statue and he told them to bow down and to worship it. And if you don't worship it, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And sometimes we feel like if we don't go along to get along, if we don't compromise with the things of the world, that we're going to wind up being thrown into a fiery furnace of being ostracized, separated from friends and family and pleasure and fun and all of the things that the world has to offer. But these uh, boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. My grandmother used to tell us a story when I was a little boy, a bedtime story, and he called, she called it Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. And uh, I listened to that every year when we would go stay with her. Can't help but think of it every time I hear his name. But these boys said, we, we can't compromise. We, we don't care what it costs us. We're, we're going to do what's right. You know, I thank God for, for the veterans. And I know there's a difference between Veterans Day and Memorial Day. Memorial Day is for those that have fought the fight and given their lives. Veterans Day are for those who are veterans of wars and have come home. And they, we have three of them seated here in the congregation with us. 
But we're thankful for those that that uh, came back as well as for those who, who didn't because they were willing to not compromise. They, they were willing to take a stand in this world for what is right and willing to even lay down their lives for the glory and honor of God and, and for the safety of their, their families and their loved ones and their, their Native Americans that, that uh, this country is, is built up on. So you had the wicked world and you had Nebuchadnezzar uh, signifying that and you had the boys that were taken captive that are a picture of us being uncompromising in our faith and our commitment and our character and our nat- uh, nature and the things that, that we hold near and dear to our hearts as Americans. But we also see how God worked in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar himself and brought him to a point when he threw those boys in that fire and he could not believe his eyes when he looked in the fire and saw not three before. And one of them was like unto the Son of God. And I want you to know that every military man or woman, boy or girl, that has gone overseas, that has been cast into that fire, that has cried out and trusted and bent the knee and bowed the head and surrendered their hearts and lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He was there. He was there with them in every foxhole, every bunker, every tank, every field, everywhere they went, God was there with them, watching over them. Did He protect all of them? Did He allow some of them to die? Yes, God does that. God does that. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and and after this the judgment. And there's an appointment for everyone in this room. I don't know when your appointment is. I don't know when my appointment is. But I do know what I know. And what I know is that God has called me to be faithful to to His service. To His Lordship. To be uncompromising with the world. In my faithfulness. In my commitment to Him. Well, when when He looked in there and He saw those three boys, He says, wow, you know, the God of Israel is a mighty God. Changed His mind about Him. Didn't change his heart. Because the next day he walked out on his balcony and he looked at Babylon and says, Boy, look at this. Look at what I've done. Great Babylon. Babylon, Babylon. The Babylon, the city, the the monster that I have created. And he robbed God of his glory. Took it to himself. And he was told that you've lost your kingdom because of that. I'm going to put you in the field. I'm going to make you have a mind of an ox as a beast. And you're going to eat grass for seven years. Crawling around in the mud on your hands and knees until your fingernails grow out like eagles' talons and your feathers, your hair becomes as the feathers of of an eagle. And he stayed out there for seven years and all of a sudden he came to himself. And he looked up into heaven and he gave God the glory. And I love that verse. Chapter 4 and verse 35. Where he says that the God of Israel, the true and living God, He has His will and His way in the armies of heaven as well as in the peoples of the earth. And nobody can stop His hand. Nobody can, can interfere with the glory, with the honor, with the purpose, with the plan, with the will of God. You can't. Stop, God! 
And he confessed him as the true and living Lord. The God. Not a God, but the God of Israel. You see, that's, that's the sovereignty. That's the power of God. And Scotty just kept building on that every night until, boy, I almost wanted to run up and down the aisles. And I thought somebody might, might run me off for being, being a Pentecostal or something. But I was excited. Do, do you get excited about the Word of God? Do you get about, excited about the sovereignty, the, the providence of God? The providence of God means that God is in control of every single little thing in the world. That God is God. God is on His throne. You are not. I am not. We are not. God is in heaven on His throne, ruling and reigning from on high. And there's not a not a speck of dust, as R.C. Sproul used to say. There's not not one speck of dust that has gone rogue and is floating out in space that is not under the watchful eye, the provision of God. If you have your Bibles. I want you to look at a few verses with me in Job. And what I want to talk to you about this morning is the providence of God in suffering. And certainly when we're talking about Memorial Day, we're talking about a lot of people even right now that have just recently lost people in their lives. I see wounded warriors coming on television and I see this place that builds houses for, for those who have amputees and, and warriors that have come back from the war and, and they can't, can't live in a regular house because of their disabilities and all of the things that have ravaged our country because of the wars that we have been in. Not only of, of days gone by, but things that are taking place even right now behind the scenes that you and I might not be aware of. But you look at chapter 1 and verse 1, and it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. What is wrong with that verse? May I say that there is none that is perfect and upright. I believe in my heart that when God inked that through the writer of this book, He had tongue-in-cheek, and He was pointing out a character flaw in this man named Job. That Job looked at himself as a perfect and upright man, but oh, he was far from it. He was filled with pride about himself and who he was. He looked at himself as a perfect and upright man, one that loved God and feared God and hated or eschewed evil. But it says in verse 2, And there were born unto him seven sons, three daughters. His substance also was great. Seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, and five hundred she-asses, and a very great household. So that his, this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. You see how God is building him up in your mind. Now, I've always said that there are no great men of God. I'm not one. You're not one. He's not one. She's not one. Billy Graham's not one. R.C. Sproul's not one. Even though he's been my hero, still is, even though he's gone. There are no great men of God. There are only men of a great God. 
And those men, women, boys, and girls that have gone overseas to fight the battles for us, they, they're, not, they're not great men of God. They're just men of a great God who were willing to lay down their lives for the glory and honor of God and for the good of our nation. They are worthy of our respect and our honor. But we need not think more highly of them than they deserve because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. Verse 3 says His substance was very great. And and verse 4 says His sons went and feasted in their homes. Everyone on a certain day, this one one day, another one the next day, everyone on his day, and sent and called for the three sisters. There were ten of them, seven boys, three girls, and they would take turns at the boys' houses to go and have dinner, and they would eat, and they would drink. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone uh, about that, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all, For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned, cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. So may I say that even though Job was not a perfect and upright man, that he was an upright man. He was a good man who did love the Lord and he did serve the Lord and he loved his family and he loved his children just like all we as Americans do. And then in verse 6 it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? From where did you come? And Satan said, Oh, well, uh, from going to and fro across the earth, uh, seeking whom I may devour and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant? Job. Now wait a minute. You mean that God was going to put a bullseye on the back of Job and give Satan the rifle and ask him to draw down a bead on this man of God? Yes. That is exactly what this book teaches. We've got to realize, you see, that This story of creation and civilization and salvation and Christianity and life and death, it's very little of it really about us. That it's mostly, if not completely, about Him, about the glory and honor of God. We've got to realize who this is about. I want, you to, I want you to even think about this. Who is the most God-centered person in the universe? God. God is the most God-centered person in the universe. Who is the most Christ-centered person in the universe? Christ. Not, not you, not me. We are self-centered. But God is the only one that is self-centered who has the right to be self-centered. Because He and He alone is worthy of all glory and all righteousness. He is worthy of our worship and our devotion and our submission to His Lordship. John chapter 11 and verse 4 says this, When Jesus heard that, He said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. Who was He talking about? Well, He was talking about Lazarus the brother of Martha and Mary, and he had heard that Lazarus was sick. 
And they came and told him, and he told them, "Listen, don't worry about it, guys. This this death, this this sickness is not unto death, but it's for the glory of God." Did you realize that everything that takes place in this world, even the sickness of people that think, "Well, I got a cold, or I got COVID, or..." I've got the flu or I've got cancer. I've got all of these different ailments and things that are going on in my life. Well, why, why do I have them? What is it that, that... Well, no, I can't say that God's doing that. That must be Satan that has come to afflict me, right? Wrong. Wrong. You see, Satan was just an instrument in the hand of God. Not only in Job's life, but in Lazarus's life, in your life, in my life, in all of our life. God played... Scotty McDowell like a fiddle for the past four nights. Do you think that was Scotty? No. You see, he was just an instrument in God's hand. And we've got to look beyond the veil of the flesh. We've got to look beyond the veil of what it is that we're living in in circumstances and realize that it is the Almighty God behind the scenes that is doing the work in people's hearts, lives, bodies, families, even in the wars and the things that are going on around us, trials that take place, that they're not just happenstance. They're not, they're not love. They're not something that, that happens off the cuff. Again, as R.C. Sproul said, there's not a, a speck of dust that's floating around in the universe that is off course or gone rogue against the will and the purpose and the plan of God. I, I think of Joseph in the Old Testament and his brothers that sold him into bondage, sold him into slavery. Boy, they hated him. They hated his guts. And the reason was that they were jealous of him because of his father giving him a coat of many colors and honoring him in such a way that they had never been honored themselves. And they said, well, here's what we'll do. We'll just get rid of this guy. We'll kill him. And Reuben says, no, we don't need to kill him. We, we, can, we can do better than that. We'll just get rid of him without taking his life. We'll sell him into slavery, sell him into bondage, down to Egypt, and we'll never have to deal with him again. So they did. And of course we know God's purpose and will and plan behind that. God moved in Joseph's heart and in his life and in his circumstances in Egypt to raise him up from prisoner to the number two man sitting right under the Pharaoh at his right hand ruling in the nation of Egypt. And all of a sudden there's a drought and the boys come to Egypt and they're brought to Joseph and they didn't even recognize. He looked so much like an Egyptian with his garb and his accent and everything had changed that they didn't recognize him. Oh, but he recognized them. He knew exactly who they were. And he played a trick on them. He sent them back to get Joseph and to bring. And ultimately he revealed himself to them. And they were scared to death. Why? Because they knew they had sinned against their brother. And they deserved whatever it was that he decided to do. That he was sovereign. He was on the throne. He was in control. They had sinned against him. And if he wanted to snuff their lives out, that he had the capacity and the ability to do that. And they, they, they threw themselves. And he says, oh, don't be afraid. Listen, I, I, I want you to realize something. I love you. Boy, isn't that nice? To know that we're loved even in spite of us and not because of us. 
He says, what you did, you meant it for evil. And I realized that. But then what were the next words that came out of his mouth? God meant it for good. Well, what? That, that don't even make sense. You mean God was back before He got sold into bondage? He was moving in the hearts of His sons or his, his uh, Joseph's sons and His brothers to sell Him into slavery that He might be raised to the position that He was in Egypt? God did that? Yes. God meant it for good. Not for evil, but for good. We look at our men, women, boys and girls going all over the world fighting for our freedom and some of them coming back in body bags and they lay down their life and they die for us. And you say, wow, that, that must have been the wicked, sinful people over there in that other nation. Or it's, maybe it was Satan. Maybe it was the enemies of, of America. But I'm saying that God is in control. There's not one thing that happens in this world that God is not in charge of. And that He is not in control of. Romans chapter 8 and 28. Always been one of my favorite verses. Of course, I've got a lot of them. We know that all things work together for good. Do you believe that? Do you believe that all things, everything, not some things, most things, but all things, everything works together for good? You, you could reword that verse with permission by saying it this way. For we know that God worketh all things together for good. Oh, but it doesn't end there, does it? For we know that God worketh all things together for good to those who love God. The flip side of that coin is God does not work all things together for those who do not love God. But if we are the children of God and God lives on the inside of us, old things pass away, we are the children of God and the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. We love Him. We serve Him. We follow Him. We sacrifice for Him. We're willing to do whatever it is that He calls us to do. Then God worketh all things together for good. And we look at those things and we think, wow, sometimes I just, you know, I know that that's true. I feel it burning in my heart, but there's something screaming in my mind. It says, that, that can't be right. You know what that screaming is? That's the flesh. That's the weakness of the flesh that says, no, I, I see things in my life that are bad. No, you see things that, that you would not have done in your own life. And you believe that God is good and He doeth all things well, but you think that He's just asleep some of the time and He's not taking care of business the way that He should all of the time. My friend, if we believe that God is God and God is sovereign and God is on His throne 
And we want Him to be sovereign in our lives, our homes, our families, over our sicknesses, our diseases, our, our rebellious children, and, and all of the things that are going on in our lives that we need the sovereignty and the power of God in our life for. We want Him for that. But, oh, you know, we don't really want the sovereignty of God in these things concerning, well, my free will and ability to do what I want to do when I want to do it. But my friends, you can't have it that way. Neither can I and neither can anybody else. You cannot throw away the sovereignty of God with your right hand and then reach out with your left and try to drag it back to yourself at the time that you feel like you need Him. He's not your, your personal genie that you can just rub the little magic bottle and have Him pop out when you need Him and then go back in and let you alone when you live your life the way you want to live it. Those things don't happen. Well, there are people who try to make it happen, but I want you to realize that God is sovereign over everything. You look at verse 15. I know we, we left off some verses in between. But I want you to realize that God is sovereign uh, over everything. And I'm going to mention a few things here that He is sovereign over. And in verse 15, it says that, that concerning Job's possessions, sometimes we look at it and, and think, well, is God... Uh, God's sovereign is God providential. Is God in control of everything that I own, everything that I have? We'll take a look and see how He did Job. It says, "And the Sabaeans fell upon them, and they and took them away." Who did He take away? Well, in verse thirteen, it says there was a day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking. You know how the the three girls would come over to one of the brothers' house, and all the other six brothers would show up, and they would they would have a meal together, and they were drinking wine in the eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, "The oxen were plowing, and the uh, asses were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them. Fell upon them who? The servants and the." Asses and the, the oxen. And it says, And the Sabaeans fell on them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Do you understand that God is in control? When people draw a sword or pull a gun or a knife commit murder you say wait a minute now preacher you done messed up you see you done you don't went too far you're accusing God of sin how because I'm giving all glory to God being sovereign and in control of everything that goes on in this earth because I know that he has the power to stop it anytime he wants to he can stop anybody from doing anything at any moment that we draw breath he can save your life he can make you take a right turn when you should have took a left he can bring you right down into the midst of a battle that's going on. Oh, wait a minute. I remember David and Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. And how David told Uriah the Hittite to go back and to give this message to, to the leader of the military. And the message that he carried in his pocket from David was to the military leader for him to put 
Him in the hot of the battle, the heat of the battle, and then withdraw from Him and leave Him there to die. God, David, a man after God's own heart, sent a man to his death. Was that sin? Absolutely. You know why? Because he's not God. He does not have the right to give life, the ability to give life, nor the right to take it. But all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And the wage of sin is death. And if God takes your life, you say, oh no, wait a minute. God doesn't have to take my life. All He has to do is stop giving it. Every breath we take, every heartbeat we have is a gift of God. And if He allows us to go into a battle and to be shot overseas and not come home Alive, but come home in a flag-draped coffin, then God has the right and the power and the ability to do that. The Sabaeans fell on the servants with a sword and killed them and then robbed him of his animals. God is sovereign over theft and murder. God, God is sovereign over fire and loss of possession. You look at verse 16. While he was yet speaking, while this servant that escaped with his life, God allowed him and him alone to escape with his life so he could come back and tell the story of what happened. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God. The fire of God is fallen from heaven. And hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. You think it was by happenstance that one person lived out of both of those situations? I tell you, no. No, they were handpicked. They were chosen by a sovereign God that is on His throne and that rules and reigns from heaven. God is over the fire and the loss of possessions. But you look at verse 18 through 19. We'll skip. Uh, well, let's, let's read 17. It says, While He was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans made, made out three bands and, and, fell, and fell upon the camels and have carried them away. Yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind. From the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. They are dead. You see, God is in control. We we don't we don't have a problem understanding that. But I believe that we have a, a real hard time with accepting that. 
and then living by it as though it were true in our very own lives. God is sovereign over theft, murder. God is sovereign over fire and possessions. God is sovereign over wind and natural disasters. You think tornadoes? You think earthquakes? You think tsunamis? You think things that happen that are natural? Those are, those are acts of nature. No, they're acts of God. That is God moving in our lives. I'll tell you what, Nebuchadnezzar got the message. He understood exactly what was taking place in his life. Took him, took him a while. I mean, God had to put some, put some pressure on him. But I want you to know that God has an infinite amount of pressure. He knows exactly what it takes to cause you to illuminate, to wake up, to realize, and to be drawn to Him. And God can draw you to Himself and save your soul at any given moment. Or He can snuff your life out, take your life away, stop giving you the life that He initiated to begin with. He is sovereign over demons, devils. Mark chapter 1 and verse 27 says this, And they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, what, what thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, He, Christ, God, even He, commandeth the unclean spirits. And they do obey Him. Boy, isn't that something? That unclean Spirits, demonic spirits, even Satan himself is more obedient to God than we are. Satan is just a dog on a chain. He does God's bidding when he goes. And the Bible says that you're like your father the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. And you're just like him. He was talking to the Pharisees, the religious, but lost crowd of the day. May I say that anytime Satan goes anywhere and does anything, he has to have permission. He does not come and invade your home or your heart or your mind or your family or your body without God allowing him to do that. And God has him on a choke chain and he's got him on a short leash. Oh, by the way, he came to God and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And he says, well, yeah, I'm concerned him, but you've got him hedged about. If you'll take down that hedge and let me at him, you see, he's got to have permission to get to him. If you'll let me at him, he'll curse you to your face. He says, go, but don't touch his body. Touch his stuff. Now he goes back in chapter 2. As a matter of fact, turn there and look at it. It says again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before God, that's the same thing it said back in the uh, in, in chapter one. And the Lord said unto Satan, "Whence comest thou?" And Satan said, "Well, you know, I've been just kicking it down on earth, walking up and down in it, to and fro." And the Lord said unto Satan, "Hast thou considered my servant Job?" Second time, God drew His attention to His servant Job. 
Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that fears God and escheweth evil? Oh, and by the way, I know what you did to him. And he still holdeth fast to his integrity. Although thou moved me against him to destroy him without a cause. See, you, you tried to bring me in to destroy Job. But all I did was release you to prove what he was made of. I knew his heart because I'm the one who put it in his chest. I knew his temper as in steel because I'm the one who gave it to him. I know. You see, you're telling me that he'll fall. He'll curse me to his face, to my face. But, but do you not realize who you're talking to? That I know what tomorrow holds. I am God. I am sovereign. I know everything. There's not any, I'm omniscient. I'm omniscience. I'm omniscient. I know everything. There's nothing that I don't know. I'm omnipotent. I'm all-powerful. There's nothing I can't do. I'm omnipresent. I'm everywhere. Not only everywhere in geographical terms, but everywhere in time terms. I'm yesterday, today, and forever. I can go into the future and see exactly what it holds. I am outside of your three-dimensional time box. I'm God. It is this God with whom we have to do. He is sovereign over demons. He is sovereign over sickness and health. He came back and in this, this second thing where he, he talks to God and God answers him and says, I know what you did. And then in verse 4, Satan answers the Lord and says, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord looked at Satan the second time and says, Behold, he is in thine hand. Do you understand who is really in control? Do you understand really in whose hand Job is in? It's not Satan's hand. You're not in Satan's hand. You're in God's hand. And when we realize whom this God is with whom we have to do, that scares me to death. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do we understand how we as frail human beings should be shaking in our boots because of the God with whom we serve? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no shadow of turning in Him. We change. Circumstances change. But God never, ever changes. It says, if you'll let me at Him, He'll curse you to your face. And God says, I put Him in your hand. And the Lord said unto him, Behold, He is in thine hand, but save His life. You see, even Satan, a murderer, cannot be a murderer Unless God allows him to murder. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job, and what he smite him with? Sore boils. Have you ever had a boil? 
It's like a big pimple with 23 heads or something. I mean, it's just a horrible, horrible thing. And He didn't just give Him one. No, He covered Him from the very top of His head to the very soles of His feet to where He's sitting in sackcloth and ashes and He's heaping ashes up to rain down on Him to show His remorse and His sorrow and His repentance of whatever it is. And He's taking potsherds and He's scraping these boils trying to get just a little bit of relief from what it is that God has heaped on Him. You say, there you go again. Blaming God. My friend, I'm telling you that chapter 2, verse 1 through 7 tells me that God is sovereign. God is sovereign over sickness and health. God is sovereign over life and death. Deuteronomy chapter 32, I'll read this quickly because it's a few verses, 37 through 43. It says this, And he shall say, Where are thy gods, their rock in whom they have trusted? This is God questioning uh, the the people of God and and the the nations around them that have worshipped other gods. Where is their, their gods, the rock of whom they trusted, which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you. And be your protection. You have things you're putting your faith and your trust in. In this life, in this world. Your little bony chest stuck out because you've got plenty of money in the bank. And you think that no matter what the world holds out there. That I'm, I'm settled. I'm telling you that the economy of America is as fragile as a feather. Every dollar that we can earn and put in a bank can be turned into garbage tomorrow. You'll you'll one day in this economy, in this America, in the land that we live, you'll be able to take all of your money, all of the stuff that you have, put it in a wheelbarrow, roll it out on the street, leave it sitting there. People will turn it over, burn the cash for fire and warmth, and steal the wheelbarrow because it's the only thing they can use. We do not understand how fragile our life is. See how that I, even I, am He. And there is no God with me. There's no authority outside of me. I kill. I make alive. I wound. I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. Reminds me of that verse in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35. I have my will in the armies of heaven and I do my will and my pleasure in the armies of earth and there's no man on the earth, there's no army on the earth, there's no nation on the earth that can curve my desire or stop my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say I will live forever. If I whet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold on judgment... I will render vengeance to my enemies. I will render reward to them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood. And my sword shall devour flesh. And that with the blood of the slain, of the captives. From the beginning of the beginning of my revenge upon the enemy. Rejoice, O ye nation. With his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. 
God is both loving and merciful and kind and gracious to those who are obedient and faithful and follow Him. But my friend, God is terrible. He is a terror to those who reject and rebel against Him. Thirdly, we realize that all things work together for the glory of God. God is sovereign over every thing. And thirdly, Job's response. You look at chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 22. And notice what it was that Job did at the very end of chapter 1 when he found out he had lost everything. He, he didn't lose some things. He lost everything. The only thing that he maintained in his life was his life and was his wife. His life and His wife. And God left him both of those things for a purpose. I believe that Satan could have taken his wife had he chosen to. But I believe Satan left her for a purpose. You look at what it says. We'll start in verse 20. And Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head. And fell down on the ground and worshipped. Well, what did Job do? What? He just, he just lost his, his home, his family. He, he lost his children, ten children, three girls, seven boys. They're dead. They're gone. Lost all of his flocks, all of his, all of his crop. Everything that he has gone, has, has had, has gone up in a puff of smoke. And, and Job does what? He falls on his face before a holy and righteous, oh, and by the way, sovereign God. And he worships him. And he says in verse 21, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job sinned not with his lips. You see, that's what that last part of that verse means. In all of this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Who art thou? Who do you think you are, God? That you can come into my life and overpower my will with your will. My friend, I want you to realize that you do have a free will. You can do what you want to do. But your will is nowhere as near as free as God's will. Because your power is nowhere near as powerful as God's power. And when Job realized that it was God that was behind, it wasn't Satan, it wasn't the world, it wasn't people, it was God that was behind the things that were taking place in his life. He fell on his face and he worshipped God. He held his tongue. Job 13.15 says this, Though He slay me, I will yet trust in Him. Have you come to that point in your life that says, no matter what, I'm going to serve God? doesn't matter what it costs me. 
I'll lay down my life for the glory and honor of God. What is your testimony? When, when somebody comes to you, maybe you know somebody that has, has children, has boys, has have people. i got a 19-year-old grandson that just joined the Marines. He's going off to California to, to training. And, and he'll, he'll be shipped overseas somewhere, I'm sure, before it's over with. What happens when somebody, when somebody comes and knocks on my door and gives me the message that my son, my grandson, has been killed in some type of freak accident. Do, do you believe in freak accidents? Do you believe in luck? Happenstance, man, I'm telling you that if there is a God in heaven, there is no such thing as luck. If there is a God in heaven, there is no such thing as happenstance. Somebody knocks on my door and says, your son got killed, he was shot, or they had a helicopter crash, and he's gone. I come to you and I say, boy. How do I deal with this? What do I do? do? What do you say to people in that position? What do you give them? Hope? Circumstance? You know, we love you and we're, we're praying for you, but you know, Things happen and my friend, I want you to realize that it's in times like that that we need to know that there is a sovereign God on a throne that is in control that understands your suffering. Say, so what does he mean? I understand. Well, God sent his son to put on flesh. The flesh that he wore was a suit of misery and pain and shame and agony. And he did that for us. That I might be able to go to a God that understands my pain and my sorrow. That He can be a comfort to me in times of suffering, agony, and loss, and defeat. And we can realize that there is no such thing as defeat for a Christian. That God works to all things, everything, together for good to those that love Him. Do you love Him? Are you living for Him? He's the only thing in this world that's worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your love and Your mercy. God, we we look around the world and we see all of the tragedy, all of the heartache, all of the suffering, all of the death that is taking place all around us. And we wonder why them and not us. Some people wonder why anybody. Why, why does God allow this to happen? Why does it allow it to take place anywhere to any people? Isn't, aren't you a good and loving and merciful God? But God, my question is, why, why don't you allow it to all of us? God, we are worthy. We are deserving of death and separation from you. But God, we thank you. That you are acquainted with our grief and our sorrow. God, we thank you that we can look into all of these things that are taking place. And 
realize what your word says, that what it means when it says, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. God, that we can share what's going on in the world, the torture, the torment, the horror, the death, the separation of loved ones from family as a tool, God, to share the truth about sin. And sin is a killer. It separates us from everything that we love. Help us, God, to use it for your glory and your honor as a witness that people might repent. And we'll give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.